Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. The neoconservatives are a real problem in American foreign and domestic policy, and they needed to be booted out. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You already heard about that, but also... Go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way or click on the super thanks button on YouTube if you're watching there. You can also go to Spotify for podcasters, become a member there, subscribe to the show. You can throw a little monthly benefit my way. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. Leave a five-star review wherever you can. Also leave a text review. All those things help get more ears and eyes on the show. And those show requests, of course, do help me come up with content for the podcast that keeps you engaged. So I like to see what you want to hear. All right. Well, let's talk about the neocons. And this is a term that's become almost worthless. And I say that because, uh, as Ron Unce points out in this particular piece, uh, they've become so much a part of conservatism, and this is where that term conservative ink comes in, that it's really hard to differentiate the neocons from the neoliberals, from uh, the Straussians, the West Coast Straussians. The West Coast Straussians get very upset when you call them neocons. And they don't always hold the same foreign policy views as the neoconservatives. But when you put all of it together and you combine the neocons who were more interested in an aggressive foreign policy. However, they were also former liberals. This is why they're neoconservatives, new conservatives. They were former liberals who did admire parts of the Great Society, the New Deal, the 1960s counter-revolution. They admired that kind of stuff. And when you look at the West Coast Straussians, and what they talk about, and they, of course, make Martin Luther King into a conservative, and they, they admire the proposition nation. There's not a whole lot of difference there. They might disagree on foreign policy, but on domestic policy, they're rock solid. Same thing when you look at the neoliberals, who, of course, in economic policy, are very much driving uh, this kind of uh, economic egalitarianism that's, that's soft communism. I mean, it's, it's, it's socialism, really, is, is what you're talking about, but um, these people aren't, aren't very different. So all of these things mixing together to create this uniparty, essentially, which is what Ron Unz is talking about here. Now, he gives you a little rundown of the importance of the neoconservatives and, of course, American foreign policy. But also, he talks about how we have to get rid of them. 
This is something that I've been talking about for a long time. A lot of people have been talking about for a long time, particularly the paleoconservatives, the paleolibertarians. These are people that have been saying the neoconservatives are going to destroy any kind of real conservatism in America. When you, We could go back to the 1860s on this and look at R.L. Dabney, and he said to me, the, the problem with you know, American conservatism is it doesn't conserve anything. It just simply adopts the discarded positions of the left and, and treats them as their own. He was already talking about that with the North in the 1870s, the 1880s. I mean, this is what had happened. So we don't really have American conservatism anymore. We, we are conserving a 19th century leftist revolution. This is what the West Coast Straussians don't really get when they start going back to Lincoln and saying, well, Lincoln was doing, we need to focus on Lincoln. You're focusing on a 19th century leftist then. And you're conserving a 19th century leftist revolution. It was, as I've talked about on this show many times, a real French revolution in America. That 1860s period, this age of centralization around the world, none of these people would really be considered conservative whether it was in Germany, whether it was in Italy, whether it was in the United States, whether it's in Argentina and Brazil later on, none of these centralization movements were really conservative at all. Militaristic, but is militaristic conservative? I mean, we have to ask that question. It's just because you're militaristic, does that make you conservative? What is conservative? And of course, all of these things would, would, would play on the dominant traditional culture in the region, at least in some ways, you could say, well, it's kind of conservative. I mean, Lincoln saying that I'm, I'm fighting for the founding fathers. Was he really? Was he really fighting for the founding fathers? Which one? Which founding fathers? Which group? Which section? I mean, so is he fighting for the founders when he's destroying the Constitution? That was the real legacy of the founding generation, not the Declaration, but the Constitution. When he's saying I'm going to preserve my government, is that the is the Constitution a government? It creates a union, and of course the Constitution does create a government. But is the government the Constitution, or is the Constitution something else? That's that's the question. So was Lincoln really conserving much of anything? And I think the answer is decidedly no. Other than a a perpetuate revolutionizing the revolution, as Gary Wills called it, a perpetuation of a different. Uh, idea about what the revolution meant. That's not really the, the founding. It's revolutionary. And revolutionary never really is that conservative. Um, so Lincoln wasn't really a conservative. The Republican Party certainly wasn't conservative in the 1860s. They were definitely a leftist party, as I pointed out last week. Uh, and then you look around at other things that are going on in the United States. And when it comes to foreign policy, who are the first real imperialists in America? Well, of course, the Republican Party. You go back to the 1860s and you look at this revolution they're inaugurating in the United States. And I've talked about this before again. I feel like, I mean, I have to do this because the more we hammer these things home, the more people abandon the stupid idea that somehow the Republican Party is going to save us. The Republican Party and national politics are where we need to focus our attention. We need to get away from that. Start thinking locally, acting locally. The Republican Party at the center is never going to help you. It's always going to be the Uniparty. I think Ron Unz Ron is 100% on this. Okay, so this is important. Do we need to dislodge them from the center? 
Well, I mean, it's only going to happen if we dislodge our infatuation with the center. That's the only way that's ever going to happen. Because they've become the uniparty. The Republicrats. I mean, again, these are things that have been talked about since, I don't know, the 1960s, the 1970s. I mean, people were saying it back then, too. So when you when you think about you know foreign policy and the Republican Party, they have the first imperialists looking at Cretan independence and trying to spread this this new proposition around the world. It wasn't just good enough for the United States and for punishing the South for being so-called anti-American, which, I mean, that's just a preposterous uh, assertion. But by saying that we need to perpetuate this revolution around the world, I mean, protect uh, this uh, idea of a proposition nation and bring it to the rest of the world, that was very imperialist. And the Republican Party was certainly on board with that. You look at how they, for example, uh, viewed Cuba in the 1890s and what was going on in Cuba. The only reason the United States got involved, at least theoretically, in Cuba and the Philippines, but more or less in Cuba, is because you had Republicans in Cuba talking about the human atrocities going on down there. And of course, when Cuba cleaned it up, it didn't matter. Those people, that had to become part of the United States because we had to make it ours. That's the Republican Party. Which party was in favor of occupying Cuba? The Republicans. Which party was in favor of occupying Hawaii? The Republicans. Which party was in favor of occupying the Philippines? The Republicans. This is the aggressive strain of American foreign policy going back to the 19th century. So the modern Republican Party, there's no flip. The modern Republican Party is not the 19th century Democrat Party. The modern Republican Party is the 1860s Republican Party. It's just that the Democratic Party is no longer what it used to be. You see, conservatives in America don't really have a party anymore. It's not The Republican Party isn't really conservative. The Democratic Party is definitely not conservative. There's no conservative party anymore. So this is where local politics and federalism have to come into play. Anyone that, being really woke, and I'll talk about woke this week, but this is the real woke. You've woken up to the, to the, to the truth that there, for conservatives that there is no conservative party. It doesn't exist in America. And the only thing that's really conservative in America is federalism. That's it. That's the real woke. Uh, see, the, the wokies, the lefties are simply saying that what, what's happened in America is that, you know, we have this, and I'll talk about this week, but again, but they've woken up to systemic racism and all these kind of things. That America's structurally racist, and it's always been this and that. What they're essentially saying is that the proposition nation, which is what Lincoln said the, the United States was founded on, was never really adhered to. And so we've woken up to that. We've, we've, we've realized that this was all a myth. And that it's true, but it's a myth. And we need to go back to that. See, in some ways, that's what's going on there. But the real woke in America are conservatives who have woken up to say, um, there isn't a conservative party in America. It doesn't exist. Donald Trump's not really conservative. I'm not even certain. Ron, I mean, Ron DeSantis at the state level, sure. Is he going to be uh, someone that we can trust as a president of the United States? I don't think so. 
I think he's going to be too much of a nationalist. He's too much of a Hamiltonian. I mean, that's not really conservative. You know, Russell Kirk, and, and I know that you know, when I say Russell Kirk did not include Alexander Hamilton in his conservative mind, he did talk about Hamilton there. But Hamilton, in his mind, wasn't the kind of conservative he's looking for. Hamilton wasn't really the kind of conservative that Kirk would say you can build a type of conservative movement on because it's going to be co-opted too much by the left. And same thing with Lincoln. You realize Lincoln's not in the conservative mind. There's no conservative Abraham Lincoln. This is just fascinating to me that all these people think Lincoln is somehow conservative. He wasn't anything of the kind. Henry Clay's not in the conservative mind. Henry Clay wasn't a conservative. They weren't. Of course, Jefferson's not there either. There are certain parts of Jefferson that are conservative. It's his dedication to federalism, which was the real American conservative principle. I go back to that statement that John C. Calhoun made, where he said he's conservative because he's conservative, he's a states' rights man. In other words, states' rights and conservatism have to go hand in hand. You want to talk about conservatism in America, you have to go back to federalism, which is states' rights. Now, I want to get to this piece by Ron Unst, though, at least part of it. It's a long piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This was published at Unst.com, but then also Lou Rockwell picked it up at LouRockwell.com, which is where I saw it. And uh, Unst says, you know, we need to get the neocons out of American politics, or at least in power, if we're going to have any head- make any headway anywhere in curtailing the power of the central government in Washington, D.C. And I agree. The problem is, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And uh, not unless we have a revolution really from the bottom up in terms of we're going back to real federalism. I've said revolution is not, not conservative. This would be a maintenance, when I say a revolution here, a maintenance of the traditions that go back to the 13th century in, uh, in the Anglo-American tradition. You know, you can say in 1688 they had the Glorious Revolution, which was you know, the, the issuance of the English Bill of Rights. Was it really a revolution or simply a maintenance of what they had before that? The establishment, the codification of these rights and privileges that they had always contended for. So was that really a revolution? In this way, too, you can say that the American quote-unquote revolution was not really a revolution, but a maintenance of the system, the federal system that had been established through custom and precedent, and of course, local self-government. These are things that had been established over centuries by the English and then British model, the Anglo-American tradition. It's not really a revolution. So when I say well, there's got to be some type of revolution, not a physical destruction of the order, but a maintenance of the order that's been bulldozed by a real revolution in America, which is the Lincolnian Revolution. Unless we can drop that, and I think that's the key to the neocons and the Straussians, it's this love of Lincoln. You have to get rid of that. You have to destroy this fascination with Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party. And what that really comes down to, in many ways, is uh, uh, virtue signaling. It's the idea that, well, I believe in Abraham Lincoln. I believe in the good guys. These were the good guys in the 1860s. You see, I believe in equality. I'm not a racist. I'm not any of these things that I'm going to get called. They're worried about the left using pejoratives against them and 
what you're doing in that is simply moving your game to their field. Forget their game. Forget it. What really has to happen is a revolution in that we maintain the traditional Anglo-American tradition from the bottom up. That's what has to happen. It's, it's, it's a, to use the term revolution is, is probably improper, but it's the only thing that people really you know, think about. Well, yeah, revolution. We're gonna, it's simply being conservative. It's, it's going from the bottom up. So let me talk about this piece with Ron Unz. He says, last week I discussed the ironic role that America's dominant neocons may have played in shaping recent world events, perhaps inadvertently producing a beneficial outcome exactly contrary to their aggressive intent. This is interesting because he's saying that what's happened is by being so aggressive with Russia, Russia's been pushed into an orbit with China, and because they've created this much bigger world coalition, the United States has to back down. Right? I mean, the, the neocons really do want war with everybody. They love war. This is the Sherman element of them. This is the Grant element. This is, this is the, the Lincolnian side of them that you have to punish your adversaries. And you go on you know, Civil War Twitter or Civil War social media, and this is what you get. These people deserve to be punished. All these people have little Ukrainian flags in their bios and all this kind of stuff. This is what they believe. This is the neocon element of all of this, right? It's, it's the aggressive Lincolnian side of neoconservatism. You see, Lincoln's at the heart of all of this. So, Sherman is the hero. Grant is the hero. Lincoln is the hero. Why? Because they're militarily aggressive, and we need to go out and punish the bad guys. It's juvenile. It's juvenile. All these people, I think, um, are in a state of arrested development. They're not really adults. So I, I think when you when you look at this and you look at how these people are look, are, well, we got to do this. We got to we got to go out and we got to. None of them, of course, want well, to say none of them. Many of them have never, uh, you know, been part of a military operation. Some have, of course. Some of these people are former soldiers and other things. You know, former in the military, and they think this stuff is great and go out. They've been they've been so indoctrinated, so thoroughly indoctrinated. This is what they have to do. You have to be aggressive and go out and kill people through the military, and this is how, the only way we maintain power. Whereas, of course, the American foreign, the traditional American foreign policy is the exact opposite of this. So he talks about what's called the, the, the Thucydides, excuse me, trap, Thucydides trap, where eventually you get the big guy on one side, the big guy on the other side, this would be China and the United States, and they have to fight. He's saying that's just not going to happen because of what the United States has done with, uh, with Russia. He says, meanwhile, on totally different grounds, the ideologically driven foreign policy of America's dominant neocons also threatened global warfare against all countries that refused to accept American hegemony, with Russia and Iran being the leading targets of their intense hostility. During the Obama administration, these individuals had orchestrated the 2014 coup that overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected pro-Russian government. Seven years of military buildup and anti-Russian pro uh, provo provocations, I'm sorry, had eventually led to the outbreak of the Ukraine war in early 2022, with the first year of the fighting having already cost many tens of thousands of lives while raising the risk of World War III. So the world faced two entirely different geopolitical perils, one ideologically driven and one not. So you've got one that's not, and he talks about that with this Thucydides trap, but the other one is ideologically driven. 
So he says, well, then I, I argued that, of course, this is going to create a situation where uh, the United States can't really go to war with Russia because of China, because of what they've done. They've driven Russia into, into China's arms. He says, over the last 12 months, the global coalition aligned with China had quickly grown so overwhelmingly powerful that the likelihood of any conflict with America was greatly diminished. The aggressive arrogance and incompetence of the neocons may have allowed the world to escape the Thucydides trap, increasing the chances that China could replace America as the world's leading power without bloodshed or bitter, bitter conflict. This is, I mean, is that true? I mean, could this happen? Could China become the world power because the United States is being stupid? Well, I mean, it could possibly happen, sure. I mean, the neocons really are stupid. They're stupid in so many different ways, and this might be one of them. He says, but even if this analysis is correct and the disastrous failure of the neocon geopolitical strategy has inadvertently yielded a positive outcome, such behavior can hardly be excused. An elite political leadership class so incompetent that it avoids war by unintentionally wrecking its own country's strategic alliances must obviously be removed lest future blunders have less fortunate consequences. This is the neocons. We have to get them out. But he says the problem is this might be nearly impossible. He says removing the neocons from authority may be difficult to achieve since they have become so deeply embedded within D.C. political circles and the broader Atlanticist community. But I think that D.C. political circles is, is fundamental. You go back to the 1970s. And you talk to people like Paul Gottfried, and he, he was around when this was happening. And these people were just kind of a fringe. Reagan brought him in the fold. And that was the Mel Bradford fiasco. Uh, but Reagan brought them in the fold. You see, if Mel Bradford had been given his position, had, had been appointed, and had been allowed to use patronage to control things like Heritage Foundation... You never would have had the neocons get so involved in all of these different think tanks in Washington, D.C., and also within the power circles of government. You see, because where do conservatives pull people from? You get, a, you get let's say Ron DeSantis is elected president, right? Forget Donald Trump. Trump did the same thing. But let's say we get a new conservative president, Ron DeSantis. He's going to say, all right, got to fill out an administration. Where do I go? Oh, well, we're going to go to Heritage Foundation. We're going to go to... Uh, Hillsdale College. We're going to go to Claremont. These are the things he's going to look at to pull people into the orbit of his administration. And who are these people? Well, they're Lincolnians, all of them. They're all Lincolnians. When people have been selected who were not that, they're often vehemently attacked by the Lincolnians and then ostracized. Hence, Mel Bradford. You see, the real anti-Lincolnian, real conservative side of American conservatism has been so thoroughly pounded down to nothing that you're not going to have any influence in the, in the power circles in D.C. They have thoroughly defeated that side. Thoroughly. Uh, you know, there aren't any think tanks that have the kind of clout like Heritage there aren't any conservative institutions, higher education institutions, that have the clout like Hillsdale. Now, Liberty University, with all the scandal and everything else, there were some people there that might have been a little different, but not, not many of them. Uh, Claremont, 
Claremont has been getting millions of dollars from a single donor, and now they've gotten more money. And of course, because of that, they've gotten ingrained with Hillsdale. And so this is this is now another part of this. Now you could say the Claremonters are not going to be as interested in an aggressive American foreign policy. And even people like Michael Anton are starting to talk about secession in a Lincolnian way, which is absolutely laughable. But regardless, they are not as bad as the neocons, but they're still Lincolnians, and so they're still bad. Because if you start with Lincoln, you're going to end up with what we've got in America right now. Because the lefties are all Lincolnians too. In fact, this is why I used that article last week with Tim Scott from a leftist to talk about, yeah, I mean, Tim Scott, you're going to call yourself a Lincolnian? That's not really that conservative. The lefties all know it. They know that Lincoln is their guy. And righties that run around trying to say Lincoln is our guy are just full of it. And again, it's, it's known. So he gets into uh, how these people gain power. I want to read this because it's so important um, to, to see how ingrained these people are. So he says, after first gaining influence in the Reagan administration of the 1980s, this is again the Bradford fiasco, and keeping much of it under his successor, George H.W. Bush, they soon began to heavily dominate the foreign policy of Bill Clinton. Right. I mean, Clinton's foreign policy was neocon. Because they backed Senator John McCain in the 2000 Republican primaries, they were seemingly excluded from power under George W. Bush, receiving not a single cabinet appointment. Yet in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, they still managed to gain control of the entire government. Yeah, of course. Barack Obama was elected partly because he seemed to represent the total repudiation of his unpopular predecessor, but in his administration, Bush neocons were merely replaced by Obama neocons. Then in 2016, massive popular revulsion against both political parties unexpectedly propelled Donald Trump into the White House, but he soon placed his foreign policy in the hands of particularly hardline neocons, such as Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. And more recently, the Democratic neocons have regained the same role under Biden. So neocon control has now endured for more than 30 years, stretching across Democratic, Republican, and Trumpist administrations alike. And again, why did Trump go to that? Because these are the people that he had, right? I mean, this is this is all he could. Okay, well, I've got to go to something. I've got to go to something here. I've got to pick out this person or that. I mean, these, these are the circles that I've got to work in. A perfect illustration of this remarkable situation is the fact that Robert Kagan, a leading neocon architect of George W. Bush's foreign policy, is the husband of Victoria Newland who subsequently played the same role for Barack Obama and now Joe Biden. A political elite so unsuccessful and unsatisfactory must be driven from power, yet apparently it is this is easier said than done. And I agree with Ron. It's easier said than done. How do you dislodge these people? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. You dislodge them by simply ignoring or trying to get this bottom-up situation where you start ignoring the center. Now, foreign policy is difficult. Right? Foreign policy is the one thing. If you want to point, why well, say, there's two things the general government could do that are in line with the original design. One would be foreign policy. The other, of course, would be trade policy. But one would be foreign policy. So this is a really important thing. We don't talk about foreign policy much anymore. And I think some of that is works of the benefit of the, of the neoconservatives. They like this stuff. They like it when we're talking about the culture wars from the center, when we're worried about you know all these things that should be dealt with at the state and local level entirely. 
and not even in the in the discourse of the Congress. They love this stuff because it diverts the real attention away from their disastrous foreign policy goals. And what that does, I mean, Ron Paul was right when he was running for president and said that you know, foreign policy drives domestic policy. It can a Domestic policy can also mask what foreign policy is doing. If our domestic policy is stupid and we're not really, we're paying too much attention to all of these culture war things at the center, well then we're going to be deflecting our interest from the real issues, which are foreign policy and of course trade. But then he says something very important. He says, one difficulty is that the very term neocon used here has actually become much less meaningful than it once was. After having controlled American foreign policy for more than three decades, promoting their allies and protégés and purging their opponents, the adherents of that worldview now constitute nearly the entire political establishment, including control of the leading think tanks and publications. What did I just say? They have thoroughly destroyed any opposition. It's now conservative ink. It's the uniparty. It's what George Wallace talked about in the 1960s and 70s. This is what that was all about, you see. This is what uh, people were talking about and saying, we've got to save American conservatism. It's dying because of the uniparty. And the important thing about these neocons is that their one overarching goal, and people don't even get this, is power. They don't care how they get power, what they do with it. They just got to get power and they got to keep it because they like power. It's the Yankee in them. You see, what we've come down to is a Yankee-dominated America. It's not Southern. It's not Jeffersonian. It's Yankee. That's the important thing to note here. Power becomes overarching. For the Wokies, which I'll talk about, the leftist Wokies, that's their main goal. It's power. They... They just want to tear it down because they want power. What they're going to replace it with, they don't really ever say. It's some perpetual revolution, some moving the goalposts to something else. But what they really want is just to be in control. They don't like the fact that they haven't been in control. They don't even mind the institutions as much, as long as they control them, because it's really about power. They're not going to uh, you know, tear down every institution. They'll keep the institutions because the institutions mean they have power. For the neoconservatives, that's all that matters, is power. It's about either their own political power, their own economic power, their own, I mean, whatever power it is, their own personal power, it's about power. By now, I doubt there are many prominent figures in either party who follow a sharply different line. Furthermore, over the last two decades, the national security-focused neocons have largely merged with the economically-focused neoliberals forming a unified ideological block that represents the political worldview of the elites running both American parties. Exactly. The rest of the article, I mean, he gets into all these things about what he said, and but that was the important takeaway from this particular article. It's the creation of the neo, uh, the, the uniparty, I'm sorry, the uniparty in America. Neocon really doesn't mean much. The Straussians can be, I mean, we could, we could call any these people neocons. I mean, they are. Straussians are in a way. I mean, they're all they're all Jaffaites, right? Jaffa wasn't a neocon, but Jaffa and his, his admiration for Abraham Lincoln and these guys. Look, you're building into that neocon framework. They have unwittingly merged right in. Now they're gonna again. They're going to be bristled up. We're not neocons. The neocons don't like us because of our foreign policy. But in domestic policy, you're the same. 
And foreign policy does drive domestic policy, but in this way, you would, you would find alliances with them in this Lincolnian worldview, you see. That's the important thing to understand. Now, the Straussians will sometimes talk about federalism and these kind of things, but when they use terms like neo-confederate and this kind of, of nonsense, they're actually destroying themselves, and they don't even realize it. They're destroying themselves, they're destroying American conservatism, and that is the key takeaway from any of this, right? So I really like that part of this piece, um, and I want to at least bring that into the conversation. The rest of the piece, it's like 6,000 words, so it would, take me, it would take me a while to go through the whole thing. But I wanted to get that part of it out of the way and have this discussion because we're going to bridge off of this and how the Uniparty is affecting things in America and what that, that position of power and what that really means as we cover some other things this week. So, I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.